From Variety, I'm Michael Schneider. The medical drama ER premiered in 1994 and quickly became a monster hit. The show ran for 15 seasons through 2009 and helped change TV storytelling as we know it. For The Handmaid's Tale showrunner Bruce Miller, it was also an inspiration as he embarked on a writing career. Uh, I had graduated from college, so in uh, about two weeks after I graduated, I had moved out here um, to kind of try to become a writer, and then I figured I'd fail and go back and get a job like all my friends got. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, uh, next thing I knew, I was here doing this podcast. Uh, but I was living in, in Los Angeles, and I, I remember the apartment we were living in. We we had heard about the show, and it, you know, in those days, it, it was funny because Michael Crichton was the most famous person attached to it. And I had watched and read the Andromeda Strain, and I had watched uh, I, and read the Terminal Man, and all these kind of very high concept, you know, future thinking sci fi things. And then, and then this show, I was expecting that. I was not expecting something as grounded as, as it was. And But I remember watching the first one, and the thing that struck me when I, because I was still trying to, you know, definitely still trying to figure out how to write, was that you didn't know Carter's name till almost three quarters. You didn't know anybody's name. Or you didn't know who was connected to which name. They're talking about people. And the fact that you don't really need to that's not information you need to know yeah. uh it really kind of turned my head around in terms of when you get to the end and you really feel like you've been through an experience and then we started to talk about it and nobody remembered anybody's name and so the things you're trying desperately to kind of pound into people's head or i was at that time writing scripts this is this person's name this is what they do you realize uh, it doesn't matter there's an there was a an interesting thing about about a lot of my friends were going through that thing being in medical school being uh, because they had gone on to medical school after college and so they were just finishing up medical school becoming doctors going into specialties so it was really an age that i could relate to and i think that means something i mean when you start to think about Oh, okay, you know, a lot of my friends are becoming lawyers. Isn't that interesting to see what, what you know, they do all day? Um, unfortunately, I, I mean, a, a lot of what happens on TV is you see exactly what they don't do all day because it's what, you know, people imagine that they do. So I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the podcast, we talk to Bruce Miller about the pilot for ER, which is his favorite episode of TV ever, plus his favorite episode of The Handmaid's Tale. It's my favorite episode. My favorite Bruce Miller and his team on The Handmaid's Tale are busy at work on season three of the Hulu drama, which of course is based on the Margaret Atwood novel about a dystopian future in which the United States has been overthrown and replaced with a harsh theocratic kingdom known as Gilead. Elizabeth Moss stars as June, also known as Offred, and we follow her journey as she survives and powers through this new reality. The Handmaid's Tale made history last year as the first streaming series to win a Best Series Emmy, picking up gold for Outstanding Drama Series, as well as a statue for Moss as Outstanding Drama Actress, among eight wins overall. This year, the show is aiming to repeat in those categories and more, picking up a whopping 20 nominations. IndieWire recently sat down with Miller to discuss the show's success and the pressure that comes with so much attention and Emmys in its first season. We began by discussing Miller's favorite episode of TV ever, the pilot to ER, a show that he ultimately worked on. But 
just first of all, you know, it's an impossible question for me. I mean, yeah. I uh, uh, most of the time, the, my favorite episode of television is the one I've seen most recently. Yeah. Um, and there are certain iconic episodes of television that you are so memorable, but not necessarily your favorite. Uh, you know, my first answer was Chuckles the Clown from Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, classic. Um, it was yeah. a classic. But, but you know, is it your favorite or do you just remember it really well? Yeah, or? yeah. And does it hold up? You yeah, know, there, yeah. there's some that you remember that better than when you actually rewatch them. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as good as I remember it. That's, no, that's true. And I, I luckily had seen the, the pilot for ER when it aired. And then I saw it, you know, another time through the years. And then I worked on ER, so I watched it again just for kind of novelty's sake. I had, luckily, when you get on a show like ER and you're there in season nine or ten or eleven, whenever I was there, uh, you you uh, normally have to go back and watch all of those seasons to catch up. Yeah. If you're, but I had seen it all, so luckily I did not have to go back, so I could pick and choose. Yeah. And one of the ones I watched was the pilot, and the things that struck me about it were, first of all, that it was so slow pace compared to the show now yeah or, or currently when i was there when i was there and also how, how i knew that they had when it first got picked up they said it's way too fast paced right. no one will be able to follow it um so that was very odd um but the thing that i i, I noticed about it and the thing that i was over the years i was always impressed at how good a pilot it is because it doesn't ever feel like it's explaining anything and it's just on a run the whole time. Yeah. All the relationships are established on the run. Um, I think the first line is uh, Dr. Green gets woken up and they say, Dr. Green, you know, there's a patient. He says, tell, you know, um, Dr. George Clooney to, you know, Dr. Yeah. Ross to, yeah. to take care of it. And she says, it is Dr. Ross. Right. So that's the beginning of the the pilot. So you understand all of these dynamics, and you know another drunk is uh, you know Doctor Ross has come in drunk and having hurt himself. Right again, uh, again, yeah. again, and so. Uh, but just you know the I'm trying to sleep at work and they're waking me up, and I mean all of those elements are so great. So you know, uh, I, I loved ER and and I loved the kind of the pace of it and the way the the visual style and also the you know the acting was so grounded and realistic and also all the props and all those kind of things. But it really was kind of over the years how well put together it was as a pilot. Yeah. Uh, which is such a t- tough trick. People come in here and they're sick and dying and bleeding and they need our help. And helping them is more important than how we feel. But it's still a pain in the ass sometimes. Yeah, what's what's interesting about the pilot too is that it's uh, so so it's titled Twenty Four Hours, so it really is kind of just a snapshot of a, an entire day in the ER. So there's there's a lot of like mini stories going on, but there's no real like beginning, middle, and end narrative, right. which uh, you know now doesn't seem as revolutionary as it probably did back in '94, where again they were doing so many different things with this pilot that that I'm sure. At the time, and from what I remember at the time, network execs were like, we don't know what to do with this yeah. thing. It's too fast-paced. There's no real narrative. There's there. too many characters. <laughs> too many too characters. Many stories to follow. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. Um, and I think coming on the heels of uh, – I, I, I don't know all of the uh, – I'm certainly no television historian, but I think John Wells came out of the Botchko camp, and this was after Hill Street Blues. Yeah. And Hill Street Blues was just a revolutionary show for me as a as a writer, as a viewer – because there were so many storylines, and also they all didn't start at the beginning. They could start a storyline three quarters of the way through. Yeah, and the same thing on ER. And I think that that you know, uh, 
it was the, the a good evolution for for um, John Wells to take something that was in a situation like a police station where lots of stories do happen and they are, you know, uncomfortably unfinished a lot of the time to go into an emergency room where it's exactly the same thing. You never know what's going to happen. You never know how it's going to resolve. And you also don't know how um, long it's going to last. Yeah. That, that something could – and so really that lesson taught me a lot about Handmaids, which is, um, you know, uh, if you lay out the story in the first scene, people are going to be bored. They're too good at predicting and they've seen too much drama. Yeah. So you just you know try to tell the story in the way the story is meant to be told, and if it happens to start two scenes before the end of the episode, start it there. Don't. And that was really the lesson from from ER that just tell the story. You, you can't start telling the story till they roll in the door. Mm-hmm. So just wait till they roll in the door and start telling the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's it's, it's interesting because ER, of course, had like twenty two or twenty four episodes a year to, yes. to have to tell all these stories. Makes my stomach hurt. Hear you say <laughs> that number. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. But um, the other funny thing about that that pilot is, of course, we would never have ER if Jurassic Park wasn't a hit, right? The whole, like, origin story of Michael Crichton finding, like, dusting off an old yeah. 1970s script that had that took place in Boston, and he just changed the the name of the city to Chicago yeah. and sent it in, and then they managed to take this dusty old mm-hmm. script and, and update it and, and make it contemporary. And I think it was originally entitled... Uh, well, the emergency room is not what they call it because it's not a room. It's a floor of the hospital. It's a ward. And so um, in the old days, it was called the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, John Wells uh, tells the story that when he first got the script, it was titled EW, which is emergency ward. And he said, no one's going to watch a show called Ew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we should probably change it. But the funny thing is now all emergency rooms are called ERs, but they weren't before ER. They were called the emergency ward or the emergency department or the ED is really what they call it. Yeah. Um, so it's strange that that TV show kind of took an old phrase and brought it back and actually cemented it on everybody calls the emergency room the ER. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the uh, the other famous thing, of course, from the pilot is uh, you know the idea that Juliana Margulies' character was going yeah. to die. Famously, that was the original plan, and in some ways, they kind of just leave it hanging at the end of the pilot. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, and and you hear about that from time to time. Actually, I was just at Comic Con last week, and, and Vince Gilligan mentioned that they were going to kill Jesse off after season one of, of Breaking Bad. So, so this happens often. Yeah, where... we make we make uh, often make terrible terrible decisions and then try <laughs> desperately scratchily to to, yeah. s- to spin around like a dog on a scratch, you know, on pavement and, on and a slippery floor yeah yeah and then but but it, sometimes it works sometimes you come Absolutely. back and you say thank god we we veered left and but, and but also thank god we told that story about them because oftentimes the story at the beginning where they have a brush with death ends up you know in in nurse hathaway's case the the character on er kind of defining her for for years and years and years and really making her a very interesting character um i think the the lesson i always take from that is that when she you said it's this great cliffhanger in the show, uh, in ER, in the pilot, when Nurse Hathaway comes in and, and you don't know what's going to happen to her. And it, it, it seems simple, but the thing that that always says to me is this is the beginning of a series. This is the beginning of something, yeah. not the end of something. And so you feel like stories are either leading you up to an intriguing second story or cut off halfway through where this is an intriguing story. And it really does feel like... Uh, she did such an excellent job, Hathaway and or, you know uh, Juliana Margulies, uh, and you you wanted to know what that relationship was going to be like, 
Um, yeah. And so you really feel like, oh, what, what I got out of it was a really interesting introduction to a character. And then, but that story is still interesting to me. And I think once you watch the pilot, um, which is pretty long, I think it's 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, you really get a sense of her and her and and uh, George Clooney together, and I think once you get that chemistry, you're kind of like, well, why would we? What, what are we going to go? What who are we going to find that's better? What are we going to go out and look for somebody? Um, but I've been on lots of shows where you know uh, you kill off a character, or you think you're going to kill off a character in the pilot, and then once you watch it, you're like, I, you know, I need that person. Why should I just replace them? Why don't I? Yeah make them survive yeah yeah and i imagine it's a combination of the the actor just like pulling off an amazing performance but also realizing no this this character is 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 key and, and maybe yeah. there was a reason why you wanted to kill them off because they're so interesting that would have been yeah. the most shocking thing to do was to kill off this great character yes and it, and it, stab yourself in the foot yeah exactly and i think that uh it, you know it is another lesson you learn from watching botchko shows a lot of times he doesn't kill people he just sends them away they go off to take it like most people disappear in your life not because they unfortunately drop dead but because they go off to do something else somewhere out of your orbit and i i i always liked that in you know shows like uh you know Herskowitz and Zwick and Winnie Holtzman and mm-hmm. and uh, where they wouldn't you know killing a character i always feel like killing character is kind of uh, you know, it's the end to something, and it's not really, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you know, people die in your world, but I, I don't know necessarily that people should die more in your world on TV. Yeah. The, you know, it, it just starts to feel, you know, uh, unusually heavy-handed. And do you think, I mean, we've gone through so many years of, of these, uh, you know, sort of darker shows and, and, and shows that, uh, you know, sort of, you know, used killing characters as, as a plot point, that the audience is a little more immune to it it's it's harder to shock them now than maybe it was 10 years ago no, i think you're absolutely right it's harder to surprise them yeah. i mean i hear commentary on my show and all they're doing is saying okay well this person's probably going to die this person's probably going to die this person's probably going to die and you understand that that's coming from a dramatic education not yeah. from a world education you know I, I you know i don't think most people look around at the people in their lives and go ah oh, this person's going to die right. this person's going to die <laughs> right. um but they expect that kind of heightened Drama, um, you know, in a place like Gilead or in an emergency room, it's not so unusual to have people dying. Yeah. So, so it, it makes a little bit more sense. But I, um, you know, oftentimes the, you're right. The character who is killed in the pilot is someone who has either been written as an interesting character or portrayed as an interesting character, and you made the right decision. They were essential to the pilot, and they'll be just as essential in the second episode. And you're just going to have to replace them with someone who gives you that vibe if you don't bring that person back yeah yeah so so take me back to 94 where were you at the time uh, what were you uh, up to uh, uh how- thanks for giving me the year that helps <laughs> as i said i came out here to write after i graduated from school and i got a job in a bookstore and i worked there for 10 months and then i got a job writing i don't know i don't have any idea what people do for a living I, i've never had another job yeah yeah um so i am rudely and obsessively interested in what people do in their jobs. When I go to parties, I always want to call to the person who's like a marketing consultant and say, okay, what do you do? And they're what, like, yeah. well, I consult. You're like, no, what do you do? Specific, when you get yeah. into the office in the morning, what do you do? Well, I check my email. What's in your email? And so, because I don't, you know, I know the same jobs that you and I knew in kindergarten, policeman, mm-hmm. fireman, shopkeeper, you know, I don't know any, you know, and so I'm fascinated. And now I know a lot about those jobs. Uh, on this show, we do a lot of research and we end up talking to people who work in these very difficult areas of non-governmental organizations, you know, refugee settling, dealing with people who are the 
the the victims of horrible sexual violence and and they are inevitably they have the most the darkest most hilarious sense of humor yeah. and they make appalling appalling jokes that you would never ever make but when you work in that business that's what you get and you that, the yeah. thing that i really felt in the ERs, i really understood not just this workplace but what kind of what kind of people it attracts and what it does to them in terms of their like uh, sense of right and wrong and life and death because they live in a different environment where those things are a lot more in balance. Yeah, yeah, in it's, the balance. Yeah, it's a it's a world where your work is your life. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. as as a, as a writer, you probably can relate to that, right? I mean, this yeah, is, this, this <laughs> yeah, is an all consuming job that you have. But the funny thing about working in an emergency room, which is really kind of the same way the show uh, covers it, is that. It is all-consuming, but when you walk out, you don't have any patients to take care of. Every other doctor is getting reports on their post-op care or the baby or whatever. Those people walk out, and they have no idea what happened to those people. So it's all-consuming, and when you walk out, you have that feeling that an audience does, which is, what happened to those people? So there's kind of the audience and the doctors are in the same position of not really knowing the fate of the people they cared so deeply about for that 90 minutes. Well, you know, the other the other thing that I think, uh, you know, people always talk about with the ER is the fact that they didn't talk down to the audience, mm-hmm. that they didn't explain the procedures. They just you know, used the, the jargon but never explained what it was. Yeah. So you you didn't quite know what they were doing, but it didn't matter. You, you were yeah. there in, in the experience. And, and I feel like that sort of helped TV evolve. And, you know, it, it allowed other shows as well to do that and, and no longer have to speak down to and, – and just – you know, if if the audience doesn't understand what's going on, they'll they'll check it. And of course, nowadays sure. you can just go on Google. But <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, and a hundred percent clarity is not the goal. I mean, I think we're still learning that lesson um, because it's always difficult to look at a piece of art that you make and you sit down with your studio and network, and there are things that they don't understand. And uh, what you do is you have to decide whether the explanation is going to be more damaging than that moment of not knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, And ER is a really good example. Part of that workplace is the fact that you don't know what they're talking about. So if it didn't have that, it wouldn't feel real. The great thing is that you can have two people arguing on ER about two different surgical techniques or two bishop diagnosis. And as an audience member, you don't have a clue who to back factually. You know, you don't know if they're speaking Swedish. I mean, they might as well be arguing in Swedish. But you know who you like more. Or what their dynamic is. So that's what you're kind of going on. So it ends up being a character and relationship moment, not a moment about whether we should do, you know, put in a chest tube or not, which I have no idea about. Right. Um, and so what you end up doing uh, when you work on that show and, and is just come up with the with the dynamic. You know, you and I are arguing over, you know, what you did to my ex-wife. And... Uh, so let's just have that argument have it take place over you know a patient and a suture kit and all this stuff and what it ends what you just realize is that you can watch a movie in Swedish where two people are arguing and get the gist yeah yeah because they're arguing you know what arguing is like and so here it's the same thing it's just a different language and the language happens to be kind of their medical workplace language yeah 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 now what what was your breakthrough job what was your first uh, big writing gig uh, I, probably my breakthrough job was was working at a video store when I was in high school because that's when I saw every single movie <laughs> that, that I wanted to. That's, that, uh, that was the education of Bruce Miller. The, the yeah. education, definitely the education of Bruce Miller, and I'm sure a lot of people of my generation had yeah. the same education. R.I.P. Video stores. Oh, you know, yes, um, they were horrible and poorly run and, and enjoyable <laughs> for, while they lasted. Yeah, they were a business model that you could smell failure. I worked in the first one in my town, and it was like this is never going to work. Right, right. Um, and uh, so. I, I got uh, my 
first job as a TV writer mm-hmm. uh, was on a show called Higher Ground, which was on Fox Family, um, which was a briefly uh, a network that existed briefly. Yeah, but yeah. it it was um, a, you know uh, Christian um, Hayden Christensen was in it, mm-hmm. uh, AJ Cook. It was a really good Megan Ory. It was a really good cast. They're still all working. Um, and uh, it was I was a staff writer. It was a nice first job, and then I went into features for a while. And my second job was ER, um, because after I'd been in features for a while, I I hadn't really been looking for a TV job. And John Wells read a pilot that I wrote. Yeah, and he just asked me to come work, and I said yes, sir. How high, sir? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially at that point. I mean, nine years yeah. into ER, that that that's that was still the pinnacle. And it was also. Um, uh, I really had it was a show I enjoyed that I really understood. I loved the balance of character and 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 storyline and all that stuff. And I love kind of the you know the, the the medicine. I love becoming a fake doctor. It, you know, it was wonderful, and I loved working with all those people. Um, but I really have to say, I, they did a lot for me, more for me than I yeah. did for them. I didn't know what I was doing really as a producer, certainly, and as a writer. And uh, you know, people like uh, Scott Gemmel. And uh, John Wells and Yaowen Chang, who's here, um, and David Zabel kind of taught me how to write for TV because because here I was, you know, sitting in their offices. But uh, they were very patient, and sometime I'll pay them back for the TV as I owe them. <laughs> I was going to say, how hard is it to join join a show that that uh, far into its run when it's kind of a I assume a well oiled machine at that point? Is it? Uh, uh, intimidating, or is it sort of this is the bonanza? This is this is yeah the you know I, I hit the jackpot. I think it's both. I mean, I think it's intimidating. Just you know, you go into these rooms and you look around, and it's like the Yankee bullpen. I mean, these are all the best writers you know, um, and especially at the beginning when you don't really quite understand what your role is going to be. Um, uh, it, that's at the beginning on every show and at the beginning of your career. You don't know what you know, kind of what day to day is expected of you in the writers' room. Um, so it's very intimidating. But I do have to say that that there's um, they are so excited to have new, fresh voices because you know whatever their situation, you know, they've been working together for a very long time, and you know people get on each other's nerves. And so they're always happy to have a new, fresh voice that is a fan of the show. So because of that, even though you come in with butterflies, they were so accepting and encouraging and that kind of thing. Um, But the, you know, every show, I think, you know, even shows that are run really well, you know, it runs like a Swiss watch and it it runs like, you know, 300 chickens running in different directions. I mean, it's it's never a a well-oiled machine. There are elements of it, and John Wells was great at kind of taking elements and oiling them and making them work. Even if they were kind of isolated, we had a really... But it's just, it is chaos because you're moving forward too quickly. You know, when you're making 22 episodes a year, you're moving forward at a a breakneck pace. Um, You're filming really quickly. So all of those things kind of, uh, it's... It's it's a question of managing the pace that it's moving at the breakneck pace that it's moving at, and also uh, trying to trying to rush, trying to move quickly without rushing, and uh, move with urgency without panicking. Yeah, and yeah. that's what I really found that ER was like when I first got on it. But you know, I was in awe of all of those people, and I and I still am honestly they're they're 
they were a great bunch of people. They're spectacular producers, D. Johnson, you know, all these people. They've gone on to, you know, fame and fortune, and they deserve it. Well, you know, this is always a hard question to kind of answer because I don't know if there's a concrete answer to, you know, lessons learned from, say, working under a John Wells that you apply to this day. As a, as a showrunner, was there any sort of specific showrunner tip or, or, or style that, that you sort of took and, and ran with? And, and eventually when you were running your own show, uh, it was, was like this, this is this is a great way to do it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I stole liberally and directly from John Wells because I thought he did things so well. And, and after I left ER, um, you know, I was on a lot of other shows and, you know, got didn't get brought back after a year. I mean, I was I, so you end up working with a lot of other showrunners. Yeah. Um, and you see, you get to compare and contrast. Like, a, but from John Wells, um, John Wells used to do, used to delegate uh, producing duties to his staff of producers, um, and then every week he'd have a twice a week we'd have producers meetings where we'd sit around and go around and say, okay, um, you know, music, what's happening in, with music? You know, do we have our composer? What are we doing with this or that? Uh, publicity, uh, you know, um, we now do, you know, web and social media, uh, you know, casting and those kinds. And so that organizational system, I, I, I lifted directly from him in every show I've run, I've done it. Yeah. Um, and we do it here. Yeah. I like it for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're, I mean, John Wells, I think, was always interested in training the next generation of showrunners either on his show or on another show. And so you have to delegate for realsies. You actually yeah. have to give them stuff to do that you expect them to do. And if it doesn't get done by them, it doesn't get done. Yeah. And, and so I do that. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. It's the only way to do my job. But, you know, I have all these really smart people who are doing all of these time consuming, thought consuming things. Uh, parts of the job, and it's the only way I'm able to kind of carve out enough time not just to do my job, but to think. Um, so that I took from him. The idea at the beginning of seasons, he always took a writer's retreat mm -hmm. uh, to go and kind of think overall about the season past and the season to come. Uh, he did his in Hawaii. I don't do that. Um, you know, he did his in Kauai. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Economic, I, I, economics were different back then. Economics yeah. were different, but it sounds lovely. But try to explain to your family that you're not on vacation when you go to get fly, flown to Hawaii uh -huh. for a week. And all you're doing all day long is sitting in a room, and the ocean is about 150 feet away. And you sit there and work and watch the sun come up. And then watch the sun go down, yeah, and it's like tantalizing. You yeah. Know? Um, but, uh, but regardless of the setting, so I use a much more, you know, uh, much more workaday setting of my house, and that way no one is really, you know, getting their family very angry for right. coming to my house for the afternoon. Um, and we sit and we go through the season past, and we make cards like, "What was you, we do this? What was your favorite episode? What was your, you know, what was your favorite character? What character do you think was most underused?" And we sit down and go through all of those things as a group. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, you go over the past season because I think sometimes for me, I'm so focused forward on what's going to come up next that you really don't take those lessons. Um, and so that's what we try to do. So those those two things I took from John. I mean, there's a million other things. I mean, just the – Chris Chulak was running the show for a while when I was there. Jack Orman was running a show. John Wells was running the show for a while when I was there. I got to see all those different people run in that system. John just puts the executive and executive producer. He really um, – but the the other thing I took from John was I could see how how it seemed like he was so happy when he got in the writer's room to, to talk about story. Yeah. Because he had a lot of other big – 
things going on, you know, big deals, big, you know, a big company to run. And it seemed like he, you could see just the light come on his eyes and see him relax and really enjoy himself. And so it made me realize don't give that part up. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because they, they always say like the showrunner is kind of the CEO of the operation. But yeah. as a result, there's so much more you have to worry about than just the, the writing. But that's that's what brought you to this business. Yes. That's what yeah. like you are is a writer. And that's all I'm good at. Yeah. <laughs> So, so uh, the you know uh, that brings us to uh, your favorite episode of of Handmaids, and you mentioned uh, episode one of season two. Uh, yes, I did. I mean, I I I I really hesitate to mention my you know my my favorite episode. It's, they're I, all, they're all your babies. Well, yeah. they're all my babies, and also I'm really proud of what we did, kind of overall. I mean, yeah. you know, kind of to make uh, two seasons where I feel like, oh, okay, I. This is two seasons, and I like every episode, yeah. and I pretty much every moment the way I want it. Okay, um, so the hard, you know, the, the hard part is you try to turn them all into your favorites. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did. I mentioned season one of the I, because there was a lot of I, I had a lot of time to think about it. Yeah, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad. But uh, I, I got a chance to kind of. Uh, tune it to an interesting pitch, and that's what I liked about it. You know, for uh, coming into a new season, uh, coming into a season that had the same cliffhanger as the book. But um, the thing that really I like about it is that it's 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 all Lizzie. I mean, Lizzie drives it. It's all her her point of view. And um, you know, uh, coming back after the break, after the hiatus between seasons, and and you know, we were very lucky to get lots of you know, accolades along the way, um, it was difficult to kind of settle down and say, okay, well, what, get back to the work right, of, season right. three, of season two. And so I was I was thrilled at the way it came out, but also I was just, it was so fun to see uh, Lizzie jump back into that suit after she just itching to get back yeah. and to be, to be um, off right again. So, uh, I mean, I just, I was hap- so happy with the way it turns out, turned out and also just, you know, watching it be transported by Lizzie. Now I know Lizzie well, and I know you know what she's like as a person, and I know what she's like as an actress. And still, I'm blown away and swept away. You know, I really feel I'm like she's feeling those things. Yeah. Um, and even though I was on set and know that she started laughing right after we said cut and all that kind of stuff, uh, but that's I think it's Lizzie's performance and how focused it is on Lizzie really makes it my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Well, and, and and you you mentioned I mean obviously season one you you were able to produce a bit in a bubble and then you know the the Emmys and the accolades came after that so so there's a different feeling I imagine in going back to work and 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 starting that the pressure's on right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean you. Uh, the first season of the show, although it was from a very famous book, a classic book, and there was a little bit of attention just because I was a boy running a clearly woman-centered, woman-voiced show, which you know, I, you know, is an issue, and so um, uh, the, they caused a little bit of attention. But you know, I was, I, you know, we were just slugging away in the dark, which is, you know, kind of the way you are first year on every show, yeah, and. Uh, when the second year came around, you know, you, you're trying to write and you have a big Emmy sitting in the middle of your keyboard and you're trying to type around it <laughs> and get to the the L and the M and all those kind of letters because they're covered. Yeah. So what eventually you just have to do is go, okay, we're not going to do this. You know, that's a great way to write a bad show. And so you try to throw away the Emmy and just sit down and write. And that was a, it was a new experience for me. I've never kind of been on any kind of show that's gotten these kind of accolades and certainly I, I haven't you know been lucky enough to get them um so you, you you kind of are nervous about okay how the hell do i get 
past this and get back to doing what got me here. Um, but luckily, I had friends. I mean, I have, um, uh, you know, the community of writers in Los Angeles is, is you know, wonderful and close and supportive um, and big. And so you end up knowing a lot of people who have been through similar situations. And luckily, you can call them up and sit down and have breakfast and say, okay, what the, what the hell do you do? Yeah. You know, how do you write, you know, just write, you know, when you've got all of this last season, the future season, you know, uh, don't ruin it, you know, kind of all hanging over your head. And I got some very good advice from yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of caring, thoughtful, writer-to-writer advice. And, uh, I mean, I, I think that's one of the nicest things, the things that you don't really see is is the wider community of writers, actors, directors, producers that exists here. Um, you know, we got a little bit more of a sense of it as the Me Too movement uh, started and, and kind of saw what had been happening kind of right under our eyes to some of our colleagues. But you don't real, you don't realize from the outside that those you know those are the people we work with all the time. We switch around from show to show, but we're we're very much a community. And uh, so um, you have places to go for help and advice. Um, and you know you hope you can expand that that the play, that people are com- more comfortable coming forward with all sorts of things, not just professional questions. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, season two done now, so you can exhale. It uh, <laughs> it clear it clearly worked out. But there there was, and I know you've been asked a lot about sort of the the also the pressure of moving on from the book, and and uh, you know was that how liberating was that versus again sort of the the pressure of okay, we we uh, now, now now we're moving on now now we're you know creating new stories. Uh, well, it's a champagne problem, a Prosecco problem, <laughs> uh, to, to be moving on past your first season on the show. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I I made a lot of small and large alterations to the story in season one. Added big things, moved things around. Most of it is kind of, you know, wouldn't recognize it unless you're a very close reader of the book. Um, but... You know, we took some things that were a sentence and made them into a whole episode, took some things that were a big part of the book and turned them into one sentence. We did a lot of that. And so those kind of changes kind of set me up for being comfortable following my own instincts on kind of dramatically what would happen in Gilead. And that was really supported by Margaret, Margaret Atwood, who has been very supportive of the show, very, you know, comfortable, energetic, generous with her time you know she's a, she's a spectacular uh a spectacular woman and, and a you know just a lovely friend and companion she really is terrific um and she was you know very encouraging of us you know going on but i really think that she set up such a foundational world that i never feel like we're moving beyond the book i always feel like yeah. we're just exploring aspects of the world that was that's margaret's world and and also margaret's tone which is really the the thing that i think makes the show is that kind of atwoodness that very grounded realistic uh kind of medieval world with these modern voices kind of looking at it going wow this is really messed up yeah 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 you're sort of adding pages between the end of the book and the epilogue yeah 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 maybe we didn't go beyond the book maybe we're just covering those 200 years right between the epilogue between the beginning and the historical yeah events. yeah well two things about the that the the first episode back in season two that uh, sort of said to me 
okay, the, the, like they were able to do this now in success is uh, A, clearing uh, this woman's work by Kate Bush, <laughs> which is actually one of my favorite songs of all time. It's such a good song. It's such an emotional song. And, you know, you, you uh, I don't know how hard it is to get that song, but nonetheless, it felt like it's you were able so to. It's not so hard to get, but it was hard to find a place that I felt like was yeah. worth using it because it's such an iconic song for me and so beautiful. And I've only seen it in one movie, which was, uh, you know, she's having she's a baby. She's having a baby, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> and. It was so moving in that movie yeah. that I thought, well, I don't, you know, you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. Um, so when we kind of, you know, and I, I don't really think about music before we put the sequence together, and then we started to think about music, um, and I, we tried a few things, and when I saw that, it was the most affecting. But I was also like, you know, am I, am I being affected by the John Hughes movie by the, you know. <laughs> right, but she's having a baby, or, or Kate Bush's amazing voice, and just the the way the song was put together. Um, I, I thought it ended up working perfectly, but it would, took me a little convincing because I was so uh, attached to the song in general that you don't want to sully it with like, okay, this isn't quite right. You know, we're just using it to make a horrible moment more horrible. Who wants to do that? Yeah, so it had to be worth it. I had to feel like it was worth it. And, and the other thing was, I still love the story of how you guys convinced Major League Baseball <laughs> to, to use the Red Sox uh, uh, to, 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 to actually like depict that. It was it was amazing. Most of it was was uh, Warren Littlefield, who's mm-hmm. one of my partners on this, and Lizzie uh, Moss, who um, is also one of my partners, an EP on this, and she uh, she's a huge Cubs fan and a Cubs booster, and and you know. You know, if she has any identifier in the world beyond actress, I think it would be Cubs fan. Um, and you know, uh, Warren is is connected to people in that world. He's connected to everybody, but also he knows the co-owner of the. Yeah, Red he Sox, knows Tom Werner. Tom yeah, Warner. yeah, yeah. They're and all TV buddies. Yeah. So I was positive they would say no, um, that they wouldn't let us use it. But they invited us to come look at Fenway. Um, and uh, we went to look at it and see if we wanted to shoot there, and they were willing to kind of discuss shooting there. Um, but the the rights in Major League Baseball are super complicated because you know one person owns the right to the team, but they don't own the. But you've also got Major League Baseball, the entity, to sign off on using anything to do with the team. And then there's Fenway Park, which is festooned with advertisements, national ones and local ones mm-hmm. and, and also stuff. And what do you, where do you even start with that? And um, without those, it isn't Fenway Park. I mean, the, the, the signs are kind of integral to the structure. Yeah. Uh, so um, we, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a process that we were constantly worried was going to fall through. Yeah. Um, but in the end, uh, Warren, you know, kind of shepherded it through the whole way. And then when we... Um, we we were trying to figure out how you clear the the signs how you know what you do about the signs in the baseball park because on the one hand i think those people had signed deals with major league baseball and the red sox that you weren't allowed to show the stadium without showing their signs mm-hmm. so you know uh, but we certainly didn't want to make anybody you know kind of the sponsor of hanging in Gilead. Right. And so uh, yeah. so you know you're kind of going back and forth and eventually kind of we decided well you know they are you know we're not those those signs certainly aren't saying those corporate And that's it for this edition of Turn It On. Join us again next week, and be sure to subscribe to Turn It On on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere you download podcasts. Also, head on over to IndieWire.com for your daily fix of TV news, analysis, and reviews. And while there, sign up for our daily TV newsletter. I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll turn it on again next time. the moment even more at Woody.
yeah. you know, to have those pictures from the old world. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I asked Warren about it, and, and uh, it sounded like his pitch to t- Tom Warner and the, the rest of the crew was perfect, which was the whole what's more American than baseball and what's 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 more devastating than to show a world where that has been taken away and, and what a perfect mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, representation of how terrible this new world is, and, and uh, it was a it was despotic. very smart, and also I think exactly what we're trying to do. I mean, Warren often, you know, I, I get in the weeds of how we're going to do the scene, and he's able to take a step back and articulate kind of what you're saying about the wider world. And I think that that was, you know, we weren't being disingenuous. That was what we wanted to say. Was the whole we weren't saying you know Fenway was a terrible place and now it's still a terrible place we're saying it used to be a lovely place and look what they've done to it which makes it even more ter- even the more terrible yeah yeah well so we're talking a lot about hope these days and and uh, you know the, the the future and and obviously that's that's a tough when when watching handmaids it's oftentimes really tough to feel hopeful but there are those glimmers mm-hmm. and do you feel like the the as the show goes on, the pendulum can start to swing, or or what is sort of your feeling about the balancing, uh, you know, bleakness with with hope? I feel like any episode that comes out with June alive at the end is incredibly hopeful. I mean, she's struggling to survive, and any time she succeeds, that's just her existence yeah. at the end of an episode. So I I am I, I find it inspiring, you know, her strength, her ability to keep her sanity and her sense of humor and her sense of self and also to believe in things that seem impossible. I'm I'm going to see my daughter again. I'm going to get out yeah. all those kind of things. So I actually don't find it I find it a very cruel uh misogynistic kind of, you know, spectacularly awful place, Gilead. Oh, oh, Gilead. I thought Gilead. you were talking about right now. No, no, US. Gilead. Okay. okay. Gilead, I think, is an awful place. Yeah. Uh, but um, that just kind of proves more that her ability, June's ability to survive and also to to push and change things just a little bit in, makes me feel like, oh, my gosh, well, our world isn't hasn't fallen to that place yet. Uh, we still have yeah. a chance. And if we, you know, so it's giving you an object lesson. I, I, I think I have a different feeling about the show than most of the people watch. I mean, it's rough, definitely. But I I feel like it's kind of a testament to June's strength as a woman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, a- absolutely, absolutely. It's such a great character. And, of course, Lizzie Moss. Can't say enough amazing things about her. And uh, not only a great executive producer with me, but just one of the most lovely humans <laughs> you ever yeah. want to meet. You know, so smart, so, such a pro um, you know, tireless is doesn't even begin to cover it, but just you know, a pleasure to work with. Yeah, that's always great to have uh, the the number one the call sheet be someone someone like that because mm-hmm. that sets the tone right yes, for, for absolutely. the entire production. She very much does that, and everybody going down the call sheet also is is you know an advocate, uh, an outward loud advocate for uh, a certain kind of professionalism, a certain kind of. Uh, attitude on the set, a, you know, a, a, a pleasure, taking pleasure in their work. Um, you know, no, you don't feel anybody, no one ever feels like they're being dragged to work. Everybody yeah. kind of shows up, bouncing up and down, whether it's three in the morning and snowing or 105 degrees and bright sun. They, you know, they're, they're all there. And they're very different in terms of their careers, very different in terms of their personalities and their approach to acting. And they get along beautifully because they are all really enjoying that everybody shows up ready to go, you know, and really puts their shoulder into the show. 
So here in the production offices, uh, what, uh, what 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 can you tell me about timetable wise? Uh, where were you guys at in terms of season three? Uh, season I, I finished work on season two about a month after we started season three, so mm-hmm. I overlapped a little. So I was still working on season two. Yeah, um, but uh, you know we're, we're starting to write our first you know three episodes. Uh, we usually spend the first two, three weeks talking about overall stuff, and then it starts to coalesce into episodes, and we've gotten that. We we have, uh, you know, kind of an overall sense of the season, and, you know, usually when we talk about one season, we say, okay, and the next season will be. So we, we have kind of a sense of where this season ends and how that would kick us off into the next season. Season, so we're already thinking season four as well. Yeah, well, you have to, because otherwise yeah. you, I, I think you put yourself in jail, mm-hmm. and also you, you, um, uh, you, in, uh, you inevitably make it an unsatisfying end and an unsatisfying beginning because it's not supposed to be the end of one season and the beginning of the next. It's supposed to be the end of the series. So I I always think about kind of the next. And, and you know, we've been very lucky in terms of, you know, Hulu support and MGM support. So I'm hoping we'll be able to come back for a season four. Uh, but right now, you know, we're just concentrating on what's June's journey through season three in a real kind of practical way. What does she want? How does she move along step by step? Um, in a lot of ways, the, the, the storytelling on the show is quite simple um, uh, because the hurdles for and the, the challenges for June are so apparent and so great and the stakes are so high that it, it ne- you never have to worry about, oh, why is she doing this? Why is she bothering? Why doesn't she just go to the mall? You know, it's like you don't have to ask those questions. <laughs> right. You know, she's put in a position where she's constantly making moves that have huge stakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Bruce, congratulations Thank on you. the nominations. Uh, <laughs> So, I was surprised. No, you weren't. Oh, Come always, on. yeah. Have you met any writers? <laughs> of course, <laughs> That's right. I was, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... Well, well, congrats on that. Thank and, you. And uh, it should, should be uh, an interesting uh, next couple of weeks. Uh, I know you got to do a lot of this uh, banging the drums a little bit. but uh, It's a pleasure to do. I mean, I, the thing you're always happiest about is so many actors got nominated. It's women who who just did spectacular work, seven women acting nominations for the show. Yeah. But also all the craft departments who, who – they make this show. They, they, um, uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful, well-made show, and they're the people who make it and make it beautiful. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, the the fact that uh, you know they're they're dealing with so many different time frames, and you know, I'm always fascinated by the the flashbacks, mm-hmm. um, Me too, and yeah. and because that's a little more the the sci-fi element of it, I suppose. The like going back in time and and how did this all happen? A different now. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and makes my stomach hurt. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. Honestly, someone uh, at the finale. Took a photo of the the map of Gilead, <laughs> yeah. um, which I'd never really seen. I don't know if that's been out there. It's it's um, that was made by kind of the the art department uh-huh. um, off of one of the maps we had. And you know w- when you sit down and have those conversations generally about what it's going to be, and then you start talking, then they start making a specific map. You end up kind of getting into you know it would have taken the rest of our lives in academia to figure out exactly where, you know, is Omaha in or out? You know, those kind of questions. Uh, so we we put together a map that was, you know, kind of generally what we thought, you know, uh, Gilead. But Gilead is, you know, fluid. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of rebellion in Gilead. Um, they don't ha- they're not friends with either of their neighbors, which is, you know, kind of unheard of in North America. You know, Mexico and Canada kind of hate them. Yeah. Uh, so all of those things make for a lot of rebellion along the there's a nice round ring around the edge of Gilead. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little concerned about Los Angeles. 
But sorry, so who isn't? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm also just happy to know that Oprah is okay. Oprah, Oprah's fine. Oprah yes. is okay. So, well, Bruce, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this edition of My Favorite Episode. Join us again next time as we once again explore another guest pick. And be sure to subscribe to My Favorite Episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com for your daily fix of TV news, analysis, and reviews. I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you again next time. Next time.